Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Divide and conquer. It's a time-tested strategy that works all too well. But when it comes to America's endless wars, an opportunity is arising where deep divisions that are all too obvious on so many issues may actually hold fertile ground for a new gathering of the tribes, if you will. As we are all painfully aware, there are so many deeply serious issues on which anyone simply to the left of fascism is focused on, such as overt racism, astounding oppression of immigrants who want to be Americans, gun violence, revved up determination to increase pollution of our air and water, rapidly worsening economic justice, injustice, I should say, and Trump keeps us distracted with the shiny object of the day. Example, the absurd Space Force nonsense. All this while a great many innocent people are being killed by American weapons all over the world. While these endless wars are off the radar screens for Americans, they are most assuredly not off the screens for people in places like, oh, Yemen, Afghanistan, scattered about the Middle East and lesser-known wars in Africa and Asia. So with there virtually no anti-war movement at all, since, as our guest today, Professor Andrew Basevich writes, the contours of basic policy evade critical examination, and American wars continue as if on autopilot. Heavy quote. In his essay in The Nation magazine titled Challenging the Elite's Consensus for Endless War? Basevich reveals the reasons why people are not paying attention to these mindless, self-destructive wars that clearly undercut national security. And he offers a map for how to build a new unity from both left and right. We are deeply divided on so many things, but Basevich suggests that some of the energy that got Trump into office in the first place may offer the key to beginning to end the wars. Andrew Basevich, thanks so much for being with us once again on Keeping Democracy Alive. Glad to be with you. Andrew Basevich is an American historian specializing in international relations, security studies, American foreign policy, American diplomatic and military history. He's Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at Boston University, retired career officer in the armor branch of the United States Army, retiring with the rank of colonel. He served in Vietnam from the summer of 1970 to the summer of 1971. An interesting time, I'm sure. And he is a former director of BU's Center for International Relations. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Professor Basevich. Despite widespread anger and determination to get gun violence under control, the National Rifle Association has been very successful holding their ground. 
you write that there is a, quote, studied indifference to endless war, not all that dissimilar from the NRA's indifference to mass shootings. How so? I guess my sense is that the political moment is thoroughly dominated by Donald Trump, or perhaps more specifically by Trump's endless shenanigans. Yes, uh, yes. And yes. one result of, of that has been that so much of the media focus centers on that specifically. Right. And in my judgment, there's been an absence of serious coverage for any number of other issues. But one of the issues that's of particular interest to me is our ongoing, unsuccessful, seemingly endless wars. Yeah. Well, how, how is the NRA's indifference to mass shootings uh, instructive on this issue? Well, I mean, they, 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 know, they know what they believe in. And they believe in a, a, a particular interpretation of the Second Amendment, and they're simply not going to budge from that. Uh, my sense is that, particularly in the realm of national security policy, we've got an elite that is similarly focused on a particular point of view, the point of view uh, really consisting, I think, of two, two, uh, two elements. One is the, the notion of American exceptionalism. Yeah that we're called upon uh, to remake the world in our image. Mm -hmm. And secondly, that uh, military power uh, provides the instrument whereby we will ultimately achieve that, that goal. And they are uh, unwilling uh, to examine the consequences mm -hmm. of uh, adhering to those two ideas, uh, even though the evidence uh, is right before us, and particularly evidence since 9-11 and, and all the, the unsuccessful military campaigns that have ensued. Yes, I don't think any of them has been really successful. As you write, these wars continue as if on autopilot. What, what is the system that works to preserve American citizens' insulation from issues of war? Well, I think there's several factors involved. In some respects, I think perhaps the most important one is that uh, the national security establishment has evolved an approach to war uh, that uh, that enables ordinary citizens to to ignore those wars, to be oblivious. Uh, it's striking uh, that since, in particular, since uh, President Obama. Uh, was commander-in-chief, the emphasis has been on reducing the number of U.S. troops on the ground, increasing the emphasis on airstrikes, drone strikes, the use of small groups of special operations forces, uh, using proxies to fight on our behalf, altogether resulting in a relatively small number of U.S losses in these right, wars, right. Uh, and, there, and, and that becomes enough for Americans to say, I guess this, this matter is not of interest. Right. Uh, the fact that we're killing others, that we're displacing others, the fact that we're spending uh, billions of dollars, in, in comparison to the question of U.S. casualties, those things just don't have much po political uh, resonance. And yet it 
is undermining our national security. I think that can be argued uh, quite successfully. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a major effort, I'll tell you. Our guest today is uh, Professor Andrew Basevich, and and we're talking about uh, uh, the endless wars, challenging the elite consensus for endless war. How is it that the left has, as you write, inadvertently consigned war to the margins? What have we done wrong on the left? Well, presently, of course, the left is uh, utterly preoccupied with the with with uh, Trump himself, and I think, in that sense, uh, has has not been willing to formulate a fundamental critique of of U.S. national security policy, which has to begin uh, with a skepticism regarding the effectiveness of war. Has to begin with the a commitment to seeing force as a last resort, uh, a concept that was once fairly familiar uh, in American politics, yeah. but particularly since 9-11 has been abandoned. Yeah. And, and there is a long tradition of uh, left history in America, not always well known, but any student of left history of the U.S. knows how traditional it is for the movement to divide itself and be conquered fairly easily. You write of 21st century, quote, divisions within the feeble anti-war camp, one wing leaning left, the other leaning right, with neither willing to make common cause on matters where their views coincide. Say more about that, please. Well, I, I mean, I position myself politically on the right. I mean, I, I think I'm a conservative, although my version of conservatism has nothing to do with yeah. what the Republican Party advertises as conservative. No, that's for sure. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a skeptic of, with regard to uh, intervention. And I'm, I, I have been struck in recent years by the number of people who are on the left who, with whom I may have any number of disagreements on other issues, but it seems to me that we see eye to eye on this issue of the misuse of force. Uh, and it has puzzled me uh, that th- that others have proposed there should be some collaboration or left-right coalition uh, focused on uh, a critique of U.S. national security policy, but for some reason that coalition never seems yeah. to gel. Were it to do so, I think it could end up being a, a pretty powerful force. Matter of fact, the, it, its power in some senses would derive from the fact that it wasn't drawn from one camp or the other, but reflected some kind of a uh, bipartisan uh, perspective. Uh, I've, I've floated this idea in a couple of ways, in a couple of occasions, but it just never seems to go anywhere. It is indeed frustrating, and we are fairly easily uh, uh, distracted by the latest shiny object, it is true. Well, one thing I think about, uh, you know, here in New Hampshire, where this show is coming from, we had all the presidential candidates, and there were, what, 17 of them on the uh, Republican side. One of them, I thought, frankly, would do a little bit better, but who is certainly a conservative, uh, with whom I disagree on many issues, but Rand Paul has uh, articulated the a, a different approach, I think a more traditionally conservative approach to uh, international policy, to, to adventurous uh, military policy by the United States. What about 
his his people and his message there must there's a constituency for that yes uh, I, I I think there is or should be. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think that he has a lot of interesting and important things to say about foreign policy. Uh, but if you imagine that stage full of 17 uh, candidates all claiming to be true blue Republicans, uh, he's the only one who was sounding that note. So I think he tended to be drowned out uh, by the other Republicans he was running against. And then And then there's the problem of his libertarianism. I mean, he is a guy who I think genuinely uh, is committed to the to creating a a minimal state, uh, one that uh, would necessarily uh, uh, reject uh, many of the functions of the state that have a, have accrued, particularly uh, since the Great Depression, and, and that, that too just is a very very uh, tough sell, I think. So. Uh, his message on foreign policy, I find quite admirable, yeah. uh, but he never seems to get very far. But it is really, uh, I, I think, more in line with, with traditional conservatism, although that word, I mean, for to me, you know, when people on the far right call themselves conservatives, they are anything but conservative. And what are they about? Cons- oh, you're right. They're not cons- conserving anything. You make an important and interesting point, I think, when you say, quote, however ironically, Trump's own assent to the presidency might itself offer a clue about how to extricate ourselves from these forever wars. Uh, please say more about that, please. That's an interesting well, idea. Let's, re- let's recall the position he staked out as a, can- as a candidate. Uh, and, and it was, in some senses, uh, in, embedded in his notion of America first, uh, was at least an embryonic anti-war position. He, he more than any other candidate, perhaps with the exception of, of, of Rand Paul, uh, condemned U.S. post-9-11 wars, said that they were a waste of time, waste of money, and that they were achieving nothing. He's even said that again, uh, as recently as a couple of months ago. Uh, and, and it, you know, it's very difficult for us to say with certainty uh, why 63 million of our fellow citizens voted for Trump in the, in the November election. But it's my view that one of the reasons that he garnered the votes he did, I mean, the guy is completely uh, ill-equipped for the office he holds, but I think one of the reasons people voted for him was that he had the guts uh, to to say out loud what many people uh, sense, and that is that our wars have been misbegotten and mistaken and costly, and that there ought to be a reassessment of U.S. foreign policy. Now, Trump in office yeah. has not delivered on any of that, no. but the critique he articulated certainly commanded a certain amount of support, and, and there's a lesson to be learned from that. Yeah, I would like to think that there is, and and I did get the sense that part of Trump's appeal was just that, that uh, we need to have uh, America first means not being policemen of the world. And a lot of, I think, conservatives and Republicans have been saying that for a long time. And as you point out, Trump has greatly magnified how much American treasure has been wasted on the alleged war on terror. And I say that and I'll I think reality, it's an alleged war on terror. You reflect that Americans, quote, like to see ourselves 
as a pragmatic people, preferring what works to what doesn't. Uh, I can't imagine anyone saying that the wars are working in our favor. How it, it amazes me how, you know, if, if we're pragmatic people, if uh, Trump said we wasted $7 billion on the, on the war on terror, how is it that, that it continues? I mean, why do people believe this stuff? Or are they just not even think about it because there's so many other shiny objects in the way? Well, I think you put your, your finger on it. I mean, and, and let's, you know, we have to, you know, life's tough for a lot of people. Uh, they're trying to support a family. They're trying to hold a job. They don't necessarily have time to give a detailed reading of the New York Times every morning and yeah. to uh, reach, you know, informed conclusions. So, so there are reasons uh, to be distracted. There are other excuses uh, to be extracted, uh, paying attention to things that, that don't really matter. Uh, but but those, those factors certainly weigh in. And again, to... Re- uh, to repeat myself, I think the fact that U.S. casualties are so right, low right. Uh, ends up being an additional excuse not to pay attention to what's being done in our name. Well, it's certainly different from Vietnam when every week there'd be all these body bags coming home, people that were friends or brothers or sons. Uh, and we could well, you're, you're right, but I mean, even, even more recently, when the Iraq war went badly, mm-hmm. roughly... 2004, 2005, 2006, U.S. casualties were nowhere near what they had been right. uh, during the Vietnam War, but they were significant enough uh, for the American to, to rouse the attention of the American people. And you'll recall that when we got to the, uh, uh, to the off-year election of, of uh, 2006, oh, yeah. uh, the result was that in the, the, the Democrats regain control of, of both houses, and they did that in part, I think, because of the negative reaction to George W. Bush's war. So it's possible for Americans to pay attention. It's still possible for Americans mm-hmm. to be mobilized about a particular issue. It just seems that mobilizing them with regard to war becomes particularly difficult when U.S. casualties are, are kept to a minimum. Yeah, it's those other people that are losing limbs and losing lives, and uh, and we don't feel it here. Uh, and it's you know it, it's far more, shall we say, abstract to 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 get that. Yeah, it's hurting us internationally. It's undercutting our national security. It's only you know recruiting for people who want to do us harm. I mean, that's really all it's doing. But the fact that we're not losing any people. Uh, very many people. Yeah, it's 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 certainly harder to focus on that when it's just drones doing the attacking. Uh, again, exactly. Andrew Basevich is our guest, uh, Professor Andrew Basevich, who uh, has written an article in The Nation magazine, which you should read, dear listener, uh, challenging the elite consensus for endless war. And there, I mean, obviously, is virtual war on the streets, and I mean virtual in the old-fashioned sense, uh, war on the streets between Trump supporters. And more traditional valued Americans, people I would call conservatives, and I suspect you would too. Yet you say, allow me to suggest that all these disenchanted millions are essentially sol- uh, are essential to solving a problem that they have thus far mostly helped to create. To write them off as cretins or bigots or crypto fascists is to make a huge mistake. End of quote. What may grab them and help them start to oppose the wars? 
is there aversion to U.S. troops, perhaps, being in, in uh, more than 170 countries around the world with a massive military budget set to exceed $700 billion in the next fiscal year, or the continuous dropping of ordnance on targets in distant lands of marginal or non-existent relevance to our own well-being. You wrote that well. Uh, please, please say more. So how, you know, how can we... Well, I think, I think we, need to, we need to widen the aperture a little bit. Uh, you know, good point. Again, back to that question. Why did these people, why did our fellow citizens in very substantial numbers uh, either vote for Trump or, as I think I s- said in the article, or simply chose not to vote at all right. because they were so thoroughly disgusted with, with, with our, our politics. Uh, so I think, I think what we need to do is to uh, examine this sense of alienation uh, and uh, with regard to our, uh, our, our policies, not simply our, our war policies, but our policies, for example, related to the economy. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, certain cultural matters as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there needs to be uh, some definition of the common good to which we can, as a society, subscribe. Not that there's going to be perfect agreement on wow. all issues, mm-hmm. but there needs to be some broader definition of purpose and of freedom uh, that that we can agree to, and that then can be the basis for economic policies, for foreign policies, and, and for cultural policies. And I think that uh, particularly since the end of the Cold War, uh, elites have propounded a set of views on these matters, again, on the way the economy is supposed to work, where they have uh, propagated this uh, notion of neoliberal globalization, mm. uh, on foreign policy, where they have propagated this notion of global hegemony, and on in in the realm of culture, where they have propagated a definition of freedom uh, that I personally think is uh, utterly misguided. It's a definition of freedom that is uh, very heavy on uh, the on the removal of constraints and very light on the whole question of obligations and duty. Mm. And my hypothesis is that the people who voted for Trump voted for Trump not because of that he offered a corrective to their to to the to our problems, but because voting for Trump was a way of basically uh, ex- expressing their unhappiness that the 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 election of 2016 was a was a plebiscite in a way. Uh, it was a it was a a vote on the the direction the United States had followed since the end of the Cold War, uh, and the vote came in as a resounding repudiation. And we need to recognize that repudiation for what it is, and then to undertake the very hard work of trying to figure out, well, what is it that we can all believe in? Uh, what, what does it mean to be an American in the 21st century? What is the purpose of our republic in the present moment? I think at, at this present moment today, there's a profound disagreement on these fundamental issues, uh, and we see that disagreement in our politics every day. Indeed, we see it in the presidency of Donald Trump. That repudiation, you know, I, I agree with you. I, it seems pretty clear it was indeed a very loud and strong repudiation. And yet, <laughs> it was, I guess, just words. I wonder, you know, if we can, 
there's obviously, you and I agree, a lot of legitimacy to that uh, drive for repudiation of going in the same direction. I wonder how we can get that back and, and talk about something as oh, obscure as the common good. Uh, and you know, as you point out, throughout our, our history, what's begun as tiny movements have grown and eventually changed policy. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. Some of the Bernie people, the, the young people, felt like, wait a minute, it didn't happen overnight, so I give up on the whole system. Uh, I disagree with that, obviously. But as you observe, it never happens overnight. You suggest it is possible to bring in patriotic Americans, not excluding Trump voters, to the realization that, quote, the present-day pension for wars is not only morally dubious, but just plain stupid, end of quote. Please tell us why you argue that, quote, the people who voted for Trump are not the enemy. They are wayward members of a flock that believes itself to have been roundly abused and neglected, end of quote. And I, I do agree for sure. It was populism. Uh, and that this dynamic may be the key to how we can actually take on this perpetual war machine. Well, I mean, here, here I, I think I am open to the charge of being uh, naive myself. But my reading of American history uh, is one that uh, shows uh, that morally informed arguments uh, can, over time, generate uh, sufficient support that they can bring about important political change. And I suppose the absolute best example of that would be abolitionism. Uh, in the first half of the 19th century, the idea of abolishing slavery yeah. uh, was not particularly popular, <laughs> even, in the, even in the North. Oh, uh, for sure. Uh, and yet Radical. there were these people that we today call abolitionists who embraced this cause with great fervor and determination and fought uh, and by the time we get to the 1860s, uh, they had won the day. They won the day not in the sense that the slaves were suddenly freed, uh, but there was a, 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 rec a recognition, particularly in the northern states, that slavery was an abomination uh, and, and that it had to be eliminated. And that, of course, resulted in the Civil War. I think we can say much the same with regard to the Civil Rights Movement of the 1950s and 1960s. You know, in, it, it is not the case uh, that white America recognized people, uh, the justice of the cause, people rep the, represented by people like Rosa Parks or, or Martin Luther King, uh, but their determination, the determination of their allies, ultimately brought us to the point where we recognize that, uh, that First, segregation, and then beyond segregation, racial discrimination was simply unacceptable, un-American, had to be addressed. Uh, and I think that there is a need for that kind of mobilization, uh, fighting a good fight over time, uh, that will lead to, uh, again, not simply a recognition that our wars are stupid, but would lead to some reconceptualization of the common good, so we can have a good answer to the question, what is the purpose of being an American uh, in the 21st century? Something that we can agree on that would become a new basis of American politics. Well, I certainly hope so. Just one 
I wonder if you have suggestions how the left anti-war people can communicate with the people on the right who want us to get out of these wars. Any suggestions for how we can start the communication? Well, I know it's difficult. I mean, it I, is. I think, you know, you've got a radio show. And sure. uh, uh, I, I don't know, you know, typically who you have on your radio show. Oh, yeah. We're working I think on I'd it. invite more conservatives, thoughtful conservatives, uh, to, to discuss uh, issues of foreign policy. Uh, yeah, if we can just talk amongst ourselves, as they used to say. Well, I know you have that's to... That's exactly right. And, and, of course, those things can also happen in other media. Yeah. It should be happening on, on college campuses. Uh, I, I, think, I think there is, a, there's, there is an untapped potential to try to forge a left-right coalition. And, again, I, I would not want to somehow suggest that this can happen overnight. Right. Uh, but it needs to happen. Uh, if it doesn't happen, then the pro-war coalition, which includes people on the left and on the right, yeah. uh, continues to hold sway. Indeed. Andrew Basevich, thank you so much. He writes for The Nation, and uh, I don't know if you have a website or something like that I can point people to. I, I'm afraid I don't, no. That's just fine. <laughs> we got too many of them. Thank you so much. Very interesting and very uh, thought-provoking. Well, I hope to talk to Thanks you Thanks for having thank me you. on. Thank you. And we'll be back in just a couple of minutes after some appropriate music talking about uh, stealing children uh, and the precedent for that. Stay with us. Time has come today, maybe. Well, we can certainly hope so for a whole bunch of different issues that people might be waking up to all the uh, amazing injustice and what's happening 
in America these days. Of course, everybody knows about the uh, separating of families, taking kids away at the border. Our guest on this portion of Keeping Democracy Live, Mark Trahant, writes, This is not the first administration to order the forced separation of families. He writes that Indian country remembers the trauma of children taken from their parents. It was pure racism back then, as it is today, in my opinion, with regard to children of dark-skinned immigrants who threatened to, as Trump said, infest America. I mean, no one can say that that phrase, infest America, is not racist. There was a popular saying, probably in the 19th century, kill the Indian, save the man. Very recently, our president boasted that our ancestors, the white settlers, had, in his words, tamed a continent. Tell us that's not racist. Well, Australia has a similar history of civilizing dark-skinned people, also by stealing children. One in three indigenous Australian children were forcibly taken from their families and communities between 1910 and 1970. In the Northern Territory of Australia, for example, the segregation of indigenous Australians of mixed descent from full-blood indigenous people began with the government removing children from their communities and placing them in church-run missions and later creating segregated reserves and compounds to hold all indigenous Australians. Whew, an ugly picture. Well, looking at American history, and we have to look at American history to move on. Uh, our guest, Mark Trahant, thank you so much for being with us on this portion of Keeping Democracy Live. Oh, happy to be here. Mark Trahant is editor of Indian Country Today. Trahant had been a professor at the University of North Dakota and the University of Alaska in Anchorage. He's also taught at the University of Idaho and the University of Colorado. Trahant is former editor of the editorial page for the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, where he chaired the daily editorial board directed a staff of writers, editors, and a cartoonist. He's also worked at the Seattle Times, Arizona Republic, the Salt Lake Tribune, uh, Moscow Pullman Daily News, the Navajo Times, Navajo Nation Today, and the Shoban News. Trahant is a member of Idaho's Shoshone Bannock tribe and former president of the Native American Journalists Association. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Mark Trahant. Trump's harsh rhetoric on Native Americans was part of his aggressive war on the expanding Native American casino industry during the 1990s, which posed a threat to his New Jersey gambling empire. What do we know about that? Well, he basically saw uh, tribes as uh, unfair competitors because uh, they were successful where he was not. And uh, he Again, racism played a role because he had in his mind uh, a narrow definition of what an Indian should look like, and anybody else was not legitimate. He was the uh, arbiter even at the time. Absolutely amazing. Well, we've all heard his Pocahontas comment about uh, Elizabeth Warren, who I hope will be one of the candidates running for president. I mean, that just... It amazes me how he can get away with that, but it, I guess it's consistent with who he is. And I find this interesting. The Trump administration contends that tribes are a race rather than separate governments. They're constitutionally protected, as a matter of fact, as separate governments, dating back to treaties hammered out by President George Washington, reaffirmed 
in recent decades under Republican and Democratic presidents alike, including Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama administrations. Well, it's true that the federal government has a horrible track record of abiding by those treaties. No president has ever established policy in direct contradiction to tribal sovereignty. I wonder if you would comment on that, please. Well, it's a longstanding, as you say, a longstanding tradition. And really the architect of modern uh, federal Indian relations in many ways was Richard Nixon. And so it wasn't really? particularly a liberal administration. Um, wow. Nixon saw tribes as governments and saw the history. And uh, one of the most unique um, aspects of his time was uh, there was a senator from New Mexico, uh, Clinton Anderson, and uh Clinton Anderson was the key vote on the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, which uh, Nixon very much wanted. But when uh, he was faced with a choice between the SALT Treaty and uh, New Mexico tribes, what he saw as an injustice, uh, Nixon chose the tribes. So you go from that, where there's this long history of presidents on both parties uh, seeing the merit with U.S. policy, to one who basically just makes it up as he goes along. Again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and I hope you're all participating in that effort. I can't do it alone. Our guest today is Mark Trahant, who has written that Indian country remembers the trauma of children taken from their parents. And it's been, I mean, virtually everybody is upset by by the the cries that we've heard, the cages, the incredible confusion parents being separated from their children and, and neither knowing where the other is. It's just horrible. It's, it's, it's not traditionally American. Your article mentioned something that was kind of a shock to me. Tiny handcuffs. Tiny handcuffs. Tell us about that, please. Sure. Marionette Pember, who is a journalist who's written for Indian Country Today for many, many years, uh, heard a rumor about these tiny handcuffs at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas, which was one of the original uh, BIA boarding schools. And uh, now it's a college, but back in the day it was actually a school for children. And uh, so she was able to get from the archives um, in the museum the actual tiny handcuffs that they used to uh, shackle uh, young children when they were being moved or, or other incidents. Uh, really a stark, stark uh, image that haunts, it's really haunting. I mean, the other thing, and it's ironic that the same week that all of this was happening on the border, um, many uh, human remains were being returned from uh, cemeteries uh, throughout um, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and other boarding schools where children died uh, away from their families. It's, you know, it's hard to face this history. It really is, but we have to face this history. Otherwise, we will never be free of it. We have to see what it was. Probably most people are not aware of the BIA Indian boarding schools. I wonder if you could tell us all about them, please. Well, really, uh, it was the, came out of the basically the U.K. The folks thought, this would be a great way to assimilate American Indians into, quote, mainstream society. And uh, the phrase you used earlier was exactly right, kill the Indian, save the man, was the idea. Uh, they dress people in um, government-issued uniforms and make them march around. One of the things that struck me, and I've written a book on it, is um, early on they were training people to be printers and work in print shops and handle ink. 
But there's that creative spirit that humans have, and immediately the folks who were in print shops wanted to be writers and started uh, finding ways to tell stories of their own rather than just print the words of others. So in, in a way, the whole boarding school experience was uh, a failed experiment in that regard because creativity rose. I should also mention that, I mean, everything is complicated. Uh, the boarding schools also brought about the rise of kind of the Indian middle class, and it really was kind of the first um, folks who worked for the government. They used to call it the government service back then. And um, it, it, even though it was very, very devastating in a lot of ways, there was also some positive aspects to the boarding school. Canada went through a very similar thing. In fact, Canada now is going through uh, uh, a pretty major uh, reconciliation yeah, and a review of how terrible the what they call them residential schools were to the cultures. And uh, again, in every case, uh, the schools f- often forced people to leave their families at great expense, at great personal expense. Yeah, I guess the, these were not schools that uh, young Native Americans, Indians would apply to and hope they get into. I mean, this was this was not their choice, right? Or, or, or was it? Not always, no. I mean, many of the folks just, uh, I mean, they really didn't want to go at all. Yeah. There's a, a really powerful movie and a graphic novel out of Winnipeg where a young man follows the train tracks trying to go home and, and eventually uh, is frozen, found frozen to death. There's a movie about the Australian situation, an amazing movie called uh, Rabbit Proof Fence, where a young girl is taken away from her family, an in- aboriginal girl, and uh, what she does to get back to her family and the injustice. People need to be aware of this. And, and you know, I think when we see, uh, you know, the, the separation, the caging, it strikes us. I mean, we feel it in our hearts because... It's just so incredibly wrong. It's just uh, amazing. What what was the purpose, do you think, back in the 19th century of taking Indian kids from their parents, just trying to wipe out the culture? I mean, what, what was the purpose of, of taking Absolutely. kids? Absolutely. Wiping out the culture was priority number one. And, um, I mean, in the boarding school's design, it was thought that it could make uh, remake civilization a certain way. And uh, like I said, it just didn't work. People um, spoke languages when people weren't watching. Uh, my grandparents' uh-huh. generation, um, there would be punishment whenever they were speaking a traditional language. And uh, nonetheless, languages not only uh, survive, but many are coming back in ways that they never would have imagined. Oh, for sure. It reminds me, well, there was a certain guy who burned all Yiddish books, you know, and uh, they're being uh, rediscovered and, and uh, embraced by people of my heritage. <laughs> you know, this kind of racist, uh, trying to erase cultures, it's not new. And these kids that are being, you know, separated from their parents and put in cages, um, they're not uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kids from Scandinavia. I mean, let's face it. We, they know what they're doing. What were the effects that you know about on, on the kids and the culture from removing the kids? What was the effects on, on them and the culture? Well, the, there's a lot of data on the trauma of being removed from your family and how uh, it's a life-changing um, situation. And um, I noticed a lot of the folks from um, 
the mental health community have been the first to say that on the border that this has got to stop because the ramifications for these, uh, particularly for the younger children, are just devastating and will impact them for the rest of their lives because uh, your parents are supposed to be your safety net. And to have that stripped from you is uh, hard to um, hard, hard to recover from. It's so powerful. Yeah, it really is. You can't just, dr- well, I suppose you can just drug the kids up, but... Uh... That's not going to work over the long term. Again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Mark Trahant, who uh, has written that Indian country remembers the trauma of children taken from their parents. How long did it go on? Do you know? Well, the boarding schools continue to this day, although um, they're in much smaller numbers, and they're probably not separating families the same way. But I'll tell you, the idea of separation continues. Um, one of the, uh, really, in 1978, Congress passed the uh, Indian Child Welfare Act, and that mm-hmm. law was because so many uh, primarily Christian organizations would come into a reservation and uh, recruit uh, broken home children and take them and have them adopted out. And tribes said, wait, this is destroying our culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, Congress at that time listened and passed this law that required children to be adopted through tribal courts so that they'd have a process in place hmm. for protecting kids from separation. And uh, a number of conservative groups, primarily the Goldwater Institute in Arizona, continued to fight that law and to continue to press for adoptions of Indian children outside of that rigorous structure. Interesting. So that structure is is part of the long-recognized uh, reality of separate governments. Con- the, these tribes, these nations are constitutionally protected as separate governments. Uh, that, and, and the Trump administration uh, is trying to uh, destroy that, not surprisingly. No, and I should, and in fairness, it's some in the Trump administration, some in, in the government do recognize the importance and have said so repeatedly. Yeah. Uh, but certainly uh, there's an element that's growing within the Trump administration that wants mm. to erase that. And it's primarily coming from uh, the, sec- uh, the administrator for uh, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, the Interior Secretary, for example, um, t- has very clearly said he believes in tribal sovereignty and will yeah. affect it. Oh, good. So what about the uh, the, the other uh, faction there? Well, the other faction sees it as race-based and wants to basically uh, do what it can to eliminate that under the law. And it will be an interesting challenge. I mean, one of the um, ways that, <coughs> excuse me, that it plays out is... Um, Tribes want to manage more of these programs, and under the law, they can, where the federal government will say, we're spending X on a program, why don't you take this money and manage it? And by making it race-based, they're saying that money is an illegal transfer uh, rather than a government-to-government transaction. Wow. Ooh, that's intense. Well, it's good to uh, know what's going on, because, you know, not everybody does. There's so many issues, we can't pay attention to them all. And Trump is depending on us being distracted so easily. How important is what you call intergenerational continuity in Native American culture, particularly? I think this, I mean, the one thing that we bring to the conversation as people indigenous to this land 
is the idea of a 10 or 20,000 year history. And while you might not know all the people in that 10,000, 20,000 year history, there's a great deal of intergenerational um, stories that are passed down. Uh, one that I'll give you an example is in the Southwest, uh, the ancient Pueblos have gone through climate change and relocated entire civilizations uh, about a thousand years ago. Huh. That's an important conversation to think about as we get ready to really. figure out how we're going to mitigate and adapt to climate change. The wisdom of the elders, now that I'm becoming one myself, I like the uh, idea very much. Come on, sure. I wonder if you could compare traditional respect for elders in the Indian community with the wider, you know, largely white-dominated uh, culture, Re- traditional respect for the elders, the place of that, what it is, what it looks like. It's certainly uh, very much a part of the culture, um, and it it stems from uh, the idea of these stories being passed down over generations. And in the um, and every tribe is different, but in many of the tribes, there was kind of a framework for education that included the elders as the key. Um, at one point, you would be that would be your primary mission, and that's just a different framework than the Western style of thinking. Well, I wonder what non-Indigenous people might be able to do to be uh, supportive, to become better informed, and, uh, you know, to try to correct injustices. I know, you know, I I think there's sort of a general gut feeling when we look at old movies and look at uh, some of the old attitudes, kill the Indian, save the man kind of thing. What what can, can, as I say, non-Indigenous people do to... uh, to be supportive and to, you know, we got to make this change about kidnapping kids uh, first off. And, and maybe you have suggestions even with regard to that, what we can do. Well, I think pressing to say that we as a society should not kidnap any kids. And, <laughs> what and that would be a really nice start. <laughs> and um, in a divided society, that's very difficult because so many of us hear people basically cheering what's going on in the border rather than being outraged. And um, that's really difficult in society because uh, we know that it will not lead to good things for even those who support it. Um, I think part of it is recognizing the really richness in different cultures and um, the idea of, uh, I mean, one of the, so many folks are just lacking any kind of really understanding of history. (laughs) And, uh, for example, um, we think of the great cities of London and Paris and here in the Americas, the great cities were equal, and they were doing amazing things about the same time. In fact, Cahokia was much larger than London at the time. Uh, at the time of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, um, there was a uh, double ditch in North Dakota that would have been the third largest city in North America. Um, so that understanding that there's this long arc of history that's just missing from our discourse, I think, would be a first step is to try to find out how the story fits in. I don't think you can understand the United States at all without understanding the two original sins, and that would be genocide and slavery. And both of those factor into so many of our stories and how we make decisions, and both of those need to be corrected by uh, information. Yeah, karma. Boy, if our karma ever catches up with us, yow, are we in trouble. Hey, maybe you can suggest a good book, because frankly, I don't know that much about these uh, indigenous cities that existed before 
the uh, white settlers came over here. I hope you can suggest a book or two. Well, fourteen ninety one is really good uh, uh-huh. uh, with the pre uh, history uh, explanation of things. Um, I like Legacy of Conquest by Patricia Nelson Limerick that uh-huh. really talks about the story of the Unbroken West and how conquest has been a part of it from the beginning. Um, always happy to recommend my book, The Last uh, Great Battle of the Indian Wars. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, And I, I hope people uh, can get in touch with you and, and follow some of your work. Uh, best way to do it online, Indian Country Today or... IndianCountryToday.com. Yes, we just relaunched our website, and uh, we're really excited about some things we're going to be doing. Well, thank you so much. Uh, We all need partners in the fight for justice. Boy, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you.
And Oklahoma was, of course, Indian Territory until 1912, when it was finally the last piece of land was taken away. Uh, And if that sounded a little bit like Robbie Robertson, it's because it is Robbie Robertson from an album from, oh, gosh, I think 1999 called Contact from the Underworld of Red Boy. I believe he is part indigenous as well. 